Father, we come to you. And we come to you out of, out of a world and out of lives that are so often full of trouble. And we come to you out of lives that even when we think we are doing so well and everything is great, that there is, there is darkness and sin hiding underneath. And so, Father, we come to you. And we come to you as, as our Lord. We come to you because you save us. We come to you because you give us what we need. And so we pray that today you give us what we need. Give us your word. Deepen us in your spirit. Draw us closer to you, even through these few minutes we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be reading Luke 9, 18 to 27. We've been working through the uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 9. We'll wrap this series up next week. We've uh, done things a little bit out of order. But today we're going to be reading this text that again, as with much of this chapter, turns the focus on Jesus' work and what he does for us from what we do as we follow the Lord. So hear now the word of the Lord for us today. This is Luke 9, 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to focus on two questions this morning. First, who is Jesus? And second, what about you? Who is Jesus and what about you? So as the school year draws to a close, I've been uh, reflecting on final exams, and I thought back to my high school days, and especially to my chemistry teacher, Dr. Felch. And Dr. Roger Felch was, well, he was a really good teacher, but he also gave the hardest test I have ever taken in my life. You see, what he would do is he would, he would teach quite well, and he'd give you an opportunity to work through some things, but then when you got to the test, he would ask you to take what he taught you and to expand on it, to extend to the next level. And he was very, very gracious with the grading. He always graded on the curve and gave you credit for any attempt you made, but what he wanted, to do, what he wanted you to do was not just to regurgitate what he told you, but to actually think about how you would apply what he taught you to some particular example or some particular situation in chemistry. And so you would sit there and you would puzzle over these questions and you'd, you'd take one run at it and that wouldn't quite work. So you'd, you'd take another run at it and then you'd try something else. And 
And he even allowed a little bit of extra time so a few of us who were a little on the nerdy end or really stubborn would stay after class an extra 15 minutes or so and just keep trying to pound your head on this and see if, if maybe this equation or maybe that lesson or maybe if you tried this other approach, it would work. And, and often, often you would have this moment where you'd have tried a couple things and then you'd, you'd see it. There it is. What I need to do is take this equation and apply this concept, switch these two things around, and now it's obvious. It all makes sense. It's wonderful. Those of us who stayed after class were kind of geeky, right? But it was really great to have that moment when things came into crystal clear focus and you understood. You finally understood. Well, in the story, it seems like Peter and the other disciples have one of those moments. Jesus asks, who do the crowds say I am? And, and in Luke here, the word is crowds. This, this text happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. And so right before this, or a little bit before this, the disciples would have gone around and they would have been handing out food to, well, the text says 5,000 men and it's probably men plus women and children. So the disciples handed out food to thousands of people and and they started out with just five loaves and two fish. And then miraculously, the food kept going and going and going. So, so the disciples would have been in a prime place just recently to hear people say, Hey, what's going on here? What kind of miracle is this? Who do you think this Jesus guy is? Maybe, 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 maybe. And so the disciples would have just heard the crowds themselves say, Well, maybe, maybe Jesus is, well, maybe he's John the Baptist, which doesn't make a lot of sense because, well, Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins and people would have seen them together. And why in the world would you think Jesus was John the Baptist? But, but okay, miracle worker, great teacher. All right. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus is Elijah. And the Old Testament prophet Elijah was great and powerful and in some respects the prototypical prophet for God's people. And he never died. He was just brought up to heaven by the Lord. So maybe God's brought Elijah back. It could be. This is amazing. Or maybe, maybe this is one of the prophets of old. And the idea there is, is a bit like if King Arthur came back or if George Washington came walking back in today, one of, the, one of the founding fathers, one of the people who typified how we think about our people and our nation just came right back and got things going. We'd, well, we'd be pretty excited about that, wouldn't we? Maybe, maybe this guy is one of the prophets of old. And there's a sense there, too, maybe this is the last great prophet, and wouldn't that be wonderful? And those are all great options, but, but after they've listed those out, Jesus says to the disciples, but who do you say I am? And Peter's answer is, and this is, this is a light bulb moment, you, you're the Messiah, not just not just John the Baptist, that great prophet. Not just Elijah, the prototype of all prophets. Not just one of the prophets of old, but the Messiah. And I know Messiah is a church word. We don't use it a whole lot. And, and it literally means anointed one, and we don't use anointing a whole lot either. But, but this is the greatest of all time. This is the special one. This is the MVP. This is, this is the one we've been waiting for forever. And it's Jesus, Peter gets it. And now as Luke's been working through and as he continues to work through, the disciples are a bit slow. 
They don't catch on to things as quickly as perhaps they could. I mean, these are, these are people who at the beginning of Luke 9 went out and, and they proclaimed that the kingdom was coming and they did miracles. But it seems like now, now they recognize an even greater thing is happening. It all comes together and Peter says, Jesus, you're the one. You're the greatest of all time. You're the MVP. You're the Messiah. And now I want to give you a little pop quiz. And it's a pop quiz because I gave you no warning, right? So grab your bulletin, grab a pen, grab a pencil if you like. You don't actually have to. I know some of you are rolling your eyes at me and going, oh, come on. If you don't want to do it, fine. Do it in your head. But I want you to think or write down two or three or four things that you would think God's chosen one, the Messiah, the one that Israel was looking forward to. What are two or three actions that you would say, this is going to exemplify God's powerful chosen one? Think about it, write it down, two or three, and I'm just going to give you like 20 seconds here, two or three words that you would say, this, this is what we would expect God's great, powerful, MVP, greatest of all time to do. Just take a moment and do that for me. There will be no grades. All right. Now I want you to put yourself in the disciples' place and think when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. What words, what actions would the other disciples have come up with if we just did that little pop quiz with them? And obviously we can't know for sure, but, but here's my guess. They, they might think of someone who's going to start a revolt. They might think of someone who's going to overthrow the Roman rulers. They might think of someone who is going to rule in Jerusalem. The disciples probably would have thought of words of power and violence. They would have thought of the Messiah as someone who was going to come with a sword in his hand and, and do some smiting and striking. That's probably the picture that Peter and the other disciples have. And as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus turns that upside down and, and Jesus shows them that he is the one who gets to define what the Messiah will do. And now I want to I want to ask you to reflect for a moment. What are your expectations of God? When you think of what the Lord is up to, what do you think He's up to? What do you think He should be up to? What is your picture of God and how He works? And I would challenge you that all of us have a defective picture of God and how He works. All of us come to God with our own agendas, and, and even, if, even if we've read the Bible, and even if we believe in Him, and even if we want to be faithful, we still come and we expect things from God that, well, maybe they fit, but I want to challenge you to reflect on, on maybe your ideas of God and your plans for how God will work are not, in fact, God's plans, but are, in fact, your plans. That perhaps when you think of Jesus as the Messiah, you are filling in that picture with your own content and not with what the Lord himself wants to give us. So Peter gives this answer and he's got great insight, but then Jesus, well, confirms the answer, but he gives a different content to that picture. 
And Jesus' answer is, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm the suffering Messiah. And for the disciples, this would be utterly incomprehensible. The Messiah does not suffer. So Dr. Felch told us the story once or twice, as teachers tend to tell stories more than once to students. We talked about one of the finals he had in his PhD program. This was an Ivy League school, really prestigious, very, very smart people. And the final exam was one question, and totally open book. The professor said, you can use any resource you want, anything at all, totally open book. And if you know anything about teachers, you should know that you should be really scared when they say totally open book, use any resource they want, because, because it probably means the test is impossible. And here's the test. With these parameters, chart the path of this ladybug in these 26 dimensions. Let me say that again. With these parameters, chart the path of this ladybug in 26 dimensions. Yes, 26 dimensions. And no, I can't picture that. And no, you can't either. But, but of course, this is an Ivy League doctorate program, and so the students are able to just figure it out, right? No. They look at it, and they are totally confused. They are absolutely dumbfounded. And these are people who've had years and years of studying chemistry and physics. They, they know everything they is to, there is to know, they think, and they look at this test, and they pound away at it, and they pound away at it, and they just have no place to even start. Now, that is what... That is what kind of assignment Jesus is giving his disciples here. When he says, I'm the suffering Messiah, they, they just don't even have any kind of mental furniture to sit down on and, and get working on this. It simply does not compute. And then Jesus gives them four verbs in a row to describe the meaning of what it is to be the Messiah. And, and for the disciples, it seems like this just doesn't even sink in. Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah, and I came to suffer. What? I'm the Messiah, and I came to be rejected by the religious leaders. What? I'm the Messiah, and I came to be killed. What? I'm the Messiah, and I came to be raised. What? What do you even do with this? And some people who work on this text think that this is the first time in history. They think this is the very first time that somebody connected the idea of suffering with the idea of the Messiah. That this was just something totally new and unexpected and, and you just can't get your head around it. Now, I think if you read the Old Testament carefully, there's all kinds of pointers to this, but, but I think they are right in pointing out that the people hearing what Jesus had to say here. And many of the original readers of Luke's gospel would have just been saying, what? What? How does this make any sense? Jesus' disciples have this story arc pointed out or, or pictured out where Jesus is going to conquer and they're going to rule with him and it's going to be great and Roman's going to go bye-bye and, and what? You're going to suffer? We're going to reject, you're going to die? It just, it just doesn't work. And that's probably why Jesus in verse 21, after Peter has said, you're the Messiah, tells his disciples, don't tell anybody about this. 
because they just don't get it yet. And if they go out and they trumpet, the Messiah has come, the next thing is going to be grab your swords and grab your pitchforks and grab whatever you got. We're going to go kill some Romans. And that's not Jesus' message. Now, we 2,000 years later who've heard this story probably a bunch of times, it's, it's hard for us to get the freshness of this, but let's sit with it for a moment. Jesus, Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the one who came from God. Jesus, the one who God's people have been expecting for thousands of years. His identity, the actions that define him are going to be to suffer and to be rejected by God's own people and to die forsaken and miserable. I mean, sit with that for a moment. Sit with that for a moment. And doesn't that sound like failure? Doesn't that sound like the worst possible way for things to end? And so how do we live into that? How do we as God's people live into a reality where the most powerful one of all suffers, rejected, is killed? How do we wrap our heads around that? And let me give you a couple ways, and we could, and we will, I guess, spend eternity working at this, but, but to begin with, reflect on what it means that God himself, God himself in the person of the Son took on human nature and suffered and was rejected and was killed for you. When Jesus was on the cross, when he was on that journey, when he was speaking to the disciples, he didn't just have vague humanity in general in mind. He had each and every single one of his people in mind. When Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind. And that is God's chosen way to make things right in your life. When Jesus says that he is going to suffer and be rejected and died, he is saying he is going to do all of that for his disciples who are listening and for you who are listening and believe in him today. Who else do you know who, who was born and who grew up and who lived his whole life in order to suffer and to die for you? There is nobody else. And so when Jesus comes to us and he says, I'm the suffering Messiah, well, he is promising us and giving us the greatest gift of all. And it's hard to wrap our heads around. It doesn't make any earthly sense, but in the math of heaven, this is the greatest offer you will ever receive, to belong to Jesus Christ. But then if we do belong to Jesus Christ, then the story arc of our own lives takes a particular shape, and that's, that's where Jesus takes his disciples next. And he asks, but what about you? And in this text, Jesus asks, well, who are other people saying I am? And then he says, but who do you say I am? And I want to expand that to, to ask what will our lives look like if we follow in the way of Jesus, who is the suffering Messiah? This is a hard saying of Jesus, and and it's like a teacher who gives you tests, but then is always going on to the next thing. You've got concept A, we're on to concept B. We're on to concept B, we're on to concept C. You've got C, we're on to D. You've got D, we're on to E. And you, you've probably all had teachers like that who kept you running as fast as you possibly could run, and maybe even such that you could hardly keep up because they had a place they wanted to get to. 
And that's what Jesus is doing for his disciples here, that the minute they have something, he's on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so in this text, the next thing is Jesus turns from, from who he, he is to what the disciples' lives will look like. Well, well, he says that just like he will lose his life, his disciples will lose their lives. Jesus uses four verbs to describe the trajectory of his life, to, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, to be raised. And then he uses three words to describe the trajectory of the disciples' lives. Deny yourselves. Take up your cross. Follow me. Jesus is calling for total submission. He is calling people to, day after day after day, lay themselves down, submit to the burden of the cross, and follow Jesus where he leads. And you know, most of us, most of the time, we say we want to follow Jesus, but but I think what we really mean is we want to follow Jesus as long as his destination and our destination are more or less headed in the same direction. We say, well, I'm pretty happy with my life maybe, but I'd like you to add to it. And that's not what Jesus offers. What Jesus offers is to give up our lives, to lay them down, and instead to accept his life. But to live in the way of Christ means to die to everything else. To gain Jesus, we have to lose everything. And so we have to say no to sin, and we have to say no to, to not just our actions, but even to ungodly attitudes or mindsets. And, and there may be things that are really good in themselves that we have to let go of. So let me ask you this. What are, what are you accepting for yourself that Jesus wants you to deny? What are you accepting for yourself that Jesus wants you to deny? And what, what are you holding on to that Jesus is calling you to let go of? What are you holding on to that Jesus is calling you to let go of? And maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a career path, maybe it's how you spend your leisure time, maybe it's your money. What are things that you need to hold on to and what are things that you need to let go of? What are they? And now, well, let's go back to Dr. Felch for a minute. And he and his fellow students working on their PhDs, they pound away at it for six of the seven days they've been given. And then they get together and they say, hey, how's it going with that test? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I think I've just about cracked it. I, I have no clue. I've got nothing, nothing. What about you? Well, I'm doing, I, I went back to my high school notes. I worked through everything I've studied for the last decade. I have no idea. So they all get together in mass, and it's only a class of like six or seven people, and they make an appointment with the professor, and they go in and they say, we don't have a clue. We are, we can't get our heads around this. What in the world do we do with this? And the professor leans back in his chair, and he says, well, that's a real disappointment to me. I've been working at this for seven years, and I've never made any progress, and I thought maybe one of you would have some great insight and, and be able to figure this out for me, because I got nothing. And the students, they're respectful, because they still have a grade to get from this guy, but inside they go, what? You gave us this, and that's all you got? You got nothing for us? What? What? Let's take that to the spiritual level. 
What does Jesus have for us? And I think a lot of us think, whether we acknowledge this to ourselves or not, that that's what Jesus does to us. He gives us these really hard tests. He demands all these things. He goes on and on and on, and the demands never end. And no matter how good we are, we have to be better, and we're never good enough, and ah! And he's got nothing for us. It's just more demands. Now, I don't know how much we'd verbalize that, but I think sometimes that's what the Christian life looks like, that we feel like when we come to Jesus and say, we got nothing, we've tried and we've tried and we've tried, what are we getting out of this? And, and he kind of says, well, just try harder, you, they got nothing for you. But in fact, what Jesus has for us, what Jesus has for us is everything. We need a supremely compelling reason, as one commentator puts it. We need a supremely compelling reason to be willing to lay down our lives for Jesus. And what Jesus says is, when you lay down your life for me, you get your life back. And he uses a couple different words in this passage. I couldn't quite figure out why, but he, but he plays around with this idea of lives and selves. And, and if you lay your life down, only then do you get it back. And Jesus gives three pictures here. He says, if, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. And I suspect a lot of us know people, or perhaps we are people, who, who we had this one goal. And maybe it was the perfect family, or maybe it was the perfect career, or maybe it was the perfect body, or maybe who knows what it was. And we worked, and we worked, and we worked, and we worked to get there. But by the very act of pursuing that thing, we lost it. We demanded perfection of our family, and so they tuned out because we were unbearable to be around. We sacrificed everything for our careers, and, and then we realized we couldn't enjoy retirement because, because there was nothing left for us to do. The more we try to save our lives in any kind of earthly way, the more we lose them. And then Jesus says, what does it gain someone if you, if you gain the whole world but lose yourself? You know, there's an old saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. And there's an even older saying, actually, it's not an older saying, there's a slightly newer saying, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Even if you've got everything in the world, you will die someday. And finally, Jesus says that if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If we turn our backs on Jesus and we go after other things, Jesus will well, in a sense, he'll respect that choice, and he'll also turn his back on us and let us have our way. And our way literally leads to hell. But if we follow Jesus and we lay our lives down, then we get our lives back. If we follow Jesus, we get more life than we would ever have in any other way. And this text wraps up with kind of a funny saying. Jesus looks at his disciples and, and he tells them, some of you won't taste death until you've seen the kingdom of God come. And what in the world does that mean? And part of the reason we ask that question is because all the disciples died. Judas betrayed Jesus and wandered off and okay, he died. But, but the other 11, they died for Jesus. As far as we can tell, they were all executed in brutal ways because they laid down their lives to spread the good news of Jesus who suffered and was rejected and was killed and was raised again. And the disciples found out that, well, they found out in Jesus' resurrection and they found out in his ascension when he went up to heaven and took over as, as Lord of all 
But in fact, when you lay your life down, you get your life back. And here's the reality. All of us are laying our lives down for something. You may be laying your life down day after day after day for a nice house or a great family or, or a satisfying career or even the chance to someday go and relax on a beach. But you are laying your life down for something. Is that thing that you're laying your life down for something that will give you your life back? Or will it just consume your life and leave you empty in the end? I think in a sense, in the Christian life, God has given us a test of figure out the trajectory of this person in 26 dimensions. And do we have a clue how to do that? No, we do not. Do we have the ability to do that? No, we do not. But Jesus shows us the way. And only step by step, only step by step, only moment by moment, but Jesus is leading us into something that is greater than we can imagine. And maybe today you can't see that. Maybe it looks like you would have to lay down too much to really follow Jesus. Well, then I invite you to pray to the Lord to open your eyes. And maybe today you are seeing one next step, and it looks really scary. You feel like it's what God is calling you to, but it's hard. Well, God always gives more than he takes. God is remarkably generous that way. Jesus. Jesus, well, he has suffered. He has been rejected, he has been killed, and he has been raised. Jesus himself is our sign that when we lay down our lives, we get them back. And Jesus comes to you today, and, and out of all the people in the universe, he comes to you. And he says, give up yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. What about you? Will you lose your life to gain your life? Let's pray. Father, help us to lose ourselves. And help us not to lose ourselves to anything apart from you. Lord, we ask that, we ask that you work in each and every single one of us. We ask that you draw us closer to you. And whatever step of the journey we're on, we pray that you help us to move forward, step by step, to journey toward you. We cannot do this on our own. We desperately need you. Please help us to lay down our lives and to accept the life you give us. Amen.